0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their ears and their eyes have they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, And did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. 30. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate this parable of Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes to it and open our ears to it, that we might understand even the deep things of your kingdom. We ask for that illumination now through your spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you don't mind, I'd like to begin by telling you a story There was a certain mother who had four teenage sons and she called them one morning down to breakfast. The first boy was sleeping so hard that he didn't even hear the call and remained in bed. The second boy jumped out of bed when he heard her voice. He started down the stairs and then he saw the mess of toys on the stairs that he was supposed to clean up and didn't. And he remembered the homework that he had to turn in that day and he hadn't done it. And he was so discouraged that he went back to bed. The third boy raced down and started to eat, but there at the table he started getting messages from his friends and watching funny TikTok videos, and he became distracted, and his food grew cold, and he never touched it again. But the fourth boy, when he heard the call to come down, he came down and he ate. He ignored the anxiety about messes and homework. He resisted the urge to check his phone, and since he was the only one eating, his mom gave him an extra pancake and some bacon. And you can guess what happened later that day. The first three sons died. Because you must eat in order to live. But the good news is the fourth son ate and lived and went on to get married and have lots of children, and so the family grew as a result, and there was a happy ending. Okay, that was a little bit absurd. It took a turn at the end uh, into unreality, but I admit, well, I don't have to admit, right? I made that up. I just made that story up. I made up the story, though, hoping that it could teach the same kind of lesson that Jesus' story was designed to teach, that it could have a similar kind of message, but, but maybe apply to people who have more experience trying to get teenagers to get out of bed than sowing seed in an ancient field. But you get the idea. There's a message in the story, and the story conveys the message. And when you hear the story, the obvious question to ask is, what does it mean? What is Jesus trying to say? He starts talking about agriculture, but obviously he's not trying to brief people on how it is that they plant fields. He's trying to talk about something else, but what is it? What is he saying? Well, it's actually relatively straightforward. Jesus is saying that as the call to enter the kingdom goes out, as the gospel is proclaimed, not everyone will heed it. They can see that reality around them, right? We've just seen all of the resistance to the message of the kingdom throughout Matthew's gospel in the last few chapters. So Jesus is telling a story, if you think about it, that explains the phenomena that we've already been witnessing. Why isn't everybody responding? Why aren't they all entering into the kingdom that they've supposedly been waiting for? That's what the parable explains. Essentially, it comes down to this some have understanding and others do not. Jesus lays it out at the end of our text. In that final paragraph, he he sets the story aside and he gives the interpretation, and that's what it means. People hear the gospel, but some are so hard-hearted that it's as if they don't hear it at all. Nothing happens. They're deaf to the message. They have, in Jesus' words, no ear to hear. And the clues that might awaken them are snatched away by the evil one. So there's not even any influence remaining that might turn them around. Others, though, they welcome the message, but eventually their fears overwhelm that joy. The cost of following Jesus faithfully proves to be too costly. It's too high. And so Jesus says they fall away. They had no roots. There are others who seem to embrace the message of the kingdom. They seem to enter in and come to the table. But then the world calls to them. Their material comforts are so reassuring to them that that news of the kingdom, Jesus says it's choked off by those influences. It's interesting that that's the thorns. The things that we think of as positives, to have material comforts and blessings, to to live a rich and meaningful life, Jesus says these are thorns that can choke the message of the kingdom. These are people who are trying to love the kingdom and the world at the same time, but the world always wins out. But then, of course, there are those who hear and answer the call and faithfully endure, and they are fruitful and flourishing. So the way that the kingdom is either rejected or received reveals a deep spiritual dynamic. There's something going on underneath the surface. It illustrates a principle that Jesus wants to teach. Something like this. Those who act on the knowledge that they have will be given greater knowledge whereas those who do not act on what they have will have even what they have taken away from them. If you pursue understanding, then you'll gain more understanding. But if you reject what you have, you will diminish in understanding. This is what Jesus says in verse 12 when he says to the one who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. When we hear those words, it sounds like Jesus is saying something like, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But what he's actually talking about is what you do with the knowledge that you've been given. Those who receive it and act on it are given more knowledge. Those who reject what they've been given receive even less than what they had. Or to use another metaphor, you might say in terms of physical fitness, those who exercise will get stronger. But those who stop exercising don't just stay at the level of strength that they attained. They become weaker over time. Knowledge and understanding is similar. When we apply ourselves to what we have, we gain more. But when we stop, we lose even what we have. So why can't Jesus just say this? Why can't he just spell it out? Why can't he just make it really obvious? Why does he have to tell it in the form of a story? Because that's what happens. Like in the first paragraph, Jesus tells a story, and then the disciples are like, why are you doing this? People are here to hear the truth, and you're telling them a story instead. And then Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you guys what it means. Why? Why is he doing it like this when he could just spell it out? Because putting it in a story, that makes it complicated, right? Because stories are open to interpretation. When you tell a story, it means different things to different people. They interpret it in different ways. They often misunderstand the message of the story. Any of you who've ever sat in a literature class can attest to the fact that no two people ever take away exactly the same thing. From any text. If Jesus wants people to understand, why doesn't he just lay it out objectively? That's the question. That's the question that the disciples ask him. And it leads us to think about what is the purpose of parables. Why tell the story the way that he does? Because a parable can easily be misinterpreted. Some of you, if you remember this sermon at all, are going to remember the story about the boys who wouldn't come down to breakfast and how three of them died. That's the only thing you'll remember. When people ask you, what did you learn in church today? What was it about? Oh, if you don't eat breakfast, you'll die. Something like that, to that effect. Stories have that power. They stick in the mind. They're they're the things that you tend to remember. Oftentimes we can remember the story, but not the meaning of the story. And that's okay from a teacher's standpoint, because if you can remember the story, then maybe you can unpack the meaning later. If it's memorable, maybe that's enough. Right? Oftentimes that's the logic of storytelling in, in a classroom setting. A parable, if you think about it, if you had to describe like what is a parable, it's more than a story. It is a story, but it's it's more than that. Um, let me give you this is my definition. So it's it's as good as it is, but it's probably not the last word to be said. But I'm gonna give you three words understand what a parable is. A parable is a cryptic narrative analogy. A cryptic narrative analogy. So it's cryptic in the sense that it's a little bit mysterious. You read a parable and you have to interpret it. It's not clear all the time exactly what it means. It lends itself to interpretation. It's cryptic. It's narrative in the sense that it does come to us in the form of a story, and that tends to make it a little more memorable or vivid. It's an analogy, because the story usually relates to something you know about, but it's meant to illuminate something you don't know about. Oftentimes, the parables of Jesus will tell us stories about a physical reality that we're familiar with as a way of understanding a spiritual reality that we cannot comprehend. That's the analogy. Taking what we know and using it to teach us about what we do not know. That's what a parable does. But what is the purpose of teaching in parables? Does Jesus use parables because it just makes things more memorable? Because it sticks in people's minds in a way that abstract ideas rarely do? Is he accommodating his teaching to the different learning styles of the ancient Hebrews? And he knows that some people learn better from stories than they do from lectures. Is that what's going on? I think all of those benefits were probably experienced when Jesus taught in parables. That's what would have happened. The narrative would have stuck in people's minds. They'd remember, what was that thing he was saying about sowing seed and birds snatching it up? Oh, I hate it when that happens. What was that again? It would be something they would remember. And they would understand that he wasn't telling them the story because he was interested in agriculture. They would understand that he was telling them because there was some deeper meaning. So they'd get that there was a a cryptic, mysterious thing that was going on there. They would know that it was an analogy, and it was up to them to unravel it, to interpret it. They would have understood all of these things. When we think about parables, when we talk about parables, usually it's in the context of the benefits of speaking in stories in Christian theology, in Christian sort of cultural circles, when we talk about storytelling, narrative, theology, anytime we talk about the creative side of what it means to be human, people will often mention, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus told stories. Jesus taught in parables. So we use the fact of the parable as a sort of positive thing to illustrate the the beauty of storytelling. It's interesting, though, that while all of those things are valid, when Jesus is asked why he does this, that's not what he says. When the disciples say, why are you teaching them in parables? Jesus doesn't say, well, it sticks in their heads better. They'll never get this out of their minds. They'll be thinking about this all day long. No. He doesn't say, well, some of these people, they zone out if, I, if I'm too sort of luxury, and so they're going to need me to, to kind of put some funny stories in here to keep their attention. No. The way Jesus describes parables they sound less like a teaching tool and more like a punishment or a judgment. If you think about this parable in particular, the parable of the sowers, and Jesus is explaining how people hear the call to the kingdom and yet somehow don't hear it, this parable is designed to explain the rejection of the message of the kingdom. It's to warn us about the consequence of that rejection as well. So, the kingdom message is being rejected, resisted, but there's also a penalty for that resistance, which is the parable. That because people have resisted the open teaching, Jesus is now teaching in a way that is less open, where His truths are more hidden than they were before. I think all parables have this in common that they are not just teaching tools, but they are a reflection of that spiritual dynamic where when we embrace what God gives us, He gives us more. But when we turn from what He gives us, that truth grows more distant. It doesn't stay where it is waiting for you to come, but as you push, it grows more distant. It recedes Jesus says the disciples are meant to have the knowledge that is in this parable, and so Jesus gives it to them. But not everyone is meant to have it. Not everyone is entitled to it. It doesn't belong to everyone. Jesus says they have understanding. They don't have all the understanding they could, otherwise they wouldn't be asking for an interpretation, but they have understanding. They're following Him. They are faithfully following Him. And he says they should be grateful for the understanding that they have. He says, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. That understanding that they possess is a gift to them. They should be grateful for it. In fact, they should be awed by it. As Jesus says, there are a lot of prophets and a lot of righteous people who long to know what you know and didn't. They long to hear what you have heard. They didn't hear it. So you should be grateful for the gift of understanding that you have, and you should act on it. But as for the rest, Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he links that specifically to the prophecy of Isaiah. Now throughout Matthew's Gospel, we've seen that things happen in the real world in order to fulfill prophecy from long ago if you were concerned that all these people are resisting and rejecting the message of Jesus and somehow that suggests a weakness of that Gospel or some kind of a failure on Jesus's part, he's here to reassure you that no, this is what the prophet said. Not only is this resistance not unexpected, but this is a sign that the Messiah is here. That we were told that this resistance would occur. It fulfills the prophecy. So in a weird way, the parable is revealing itself to some and it is concealing or hiding its meaning from others. But we should be careful here because it's not that Jesus is hiding something from people that they desperately want to find. He's hiding from people an understanding of something they've already shown contempt for. They've already resisted it. They've already distanced themselves from it. You might think that teaching in parables is a response to that rejection. That's counterintuitive to us, right? If I'm speaking to you and I can see that you clearly don't understand, I want to do things to make what I'm saying more obvious to you. If you're not hearing me, maybe I'm talking too quietly, maybe I should yell to get your attention. That's the way we think. That's not what's happening here. There's this deeper spiritual dynamic where God doesn't operate that way. It's as if Jesus is saying, like you might think when people don't answer you that the thing to do is to talk more loudly. But for me, if they don't listen, I speak more softly. I whisper. That's still small voice. I like the logic of that practically. I am one of those people. When other people are talking too loud for the environment, I talk more softly. Um, I did this with Lori when we were first married. She's teaching Teach Me to Worship, so I can be honest with you. Um, when Lori and I were first married, she did a lot of things that weren't publicly, like they weren't appropriate behavior. And one of them was, like in movie theaters, when you're sitting quietly and waiting for the movie to begin, she would have a normal voice conversation. Like, there are people all around us, and she's just talking in her normal voice. Like, literally everyone can hear our business. And so we're dating, so I can't just come out and correct her. Uh, that would come later. So I have to do something. So what I would do is, the louder she would talk, I would talk more silently. And I was modeling good behavior. And I thought, the, the quieter I get, like, the quieter she will get, paradoxically, that's not what occurred. It was the other way. She figured out what I was doing and spoke even louder. So I had to stop doing that. And and now once again we're in danger of this being the sermon where Mark talked about how he would whisper when Lori was talking too loudly and nothing else occurring because it's the stories that stick in our minds. The story that matters, but the story's point is that God, in some mysterious way, works similarly. Where you might think that if I push back, well, he'll just get louder. If I demand evidence, well, he'll just pile evidence on. Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. But as you resist and as you push, a distance grows between you and the truth. If you reject what you were given, even what you have will be taken away. Now, the dull-hearted people that Isaiah refers to might protest that, hey, look, I, I didn't hear the message. Was there a call to the kingdom? Did somebody say to come into the kingdom? Because I, I, I didn't get it. But they got it. They heard it. They just didn't hear it. They were actively not hearing it. They were applying themselves to rejecting it. That's the point. Jesus, when He begins to teach in parables is acting out that process by which those who resist and reject the truth that God has given become more estranged from the truth and more embedded in deception. It's a warning to us, in other words. It's a warning to us not to resist, not to reject what we've been given lest it grows more distant. In other words, act on what you have, and God will give you more understanding. Act on what you have, and God will give you more understanding. If you think about it, the task of interpreting parables is a lot like growing in faith. The way that that works is a lot like the life of faith. Um, when you think about the parable of the sower, and I know many of you have heard sermons Preached on this before. Uh, we've at Grace had people come in and preach on this passage. When, whenever people preach the parable of the sower, a very typical endpoint. Don't get excited. that I said endpoint. It doesn't mean anything in this context. But, but a, a common way to end would be to pose this question: and Ask yourself, what kind of soil do you want to be? There's all this soil. Some soil rejects the seed, but but there's a kind of soil where the seed grows and it's fruitful. What kind of soil do you want to be? Is it as simple as that? Could we stop there? But when Jesus says that understanding is for some and not for others, I think we enter into this mysterious territory because it's not as simple as just a call to action. It's not as simple as just saying, well, be the right kind of soil and everything will work out. I mean, on the one hand, we are called to act and we're held responsible for our resistance and our rejection. But on the other hand, it's the Spirit who grants understanding. And we find ourselves suddenly in this territory of the the supposed tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The temptation is always to tell ourselves that it has to be one way or the other. Yet Jesus seems to hold both of these realities in His hands. That understanding is a gift from the Spirit, but we must act on the understanding that we've given. That we should actually do something with what the Spirit has given us. From a chicken and the egg standpoint, we want to know, okay, which came first, right? Did the people resist understanding? And as a consequence, the message was hidden from them? Or was the message hidden so that the people would never understand? Which was it? And in a weird kind of way, Jesus seems to be saying, eh, both. It's mysterious. It's not something you're going to easily grasp. That's a mystery that we can explore another time. But here, I want to suggest to you that there's something that's not at all mysterious in what Jesus is saying. Something that we can be clear on, and it's just as simple as this. Act on what you have, and God will give you more understanding. That's how you interpret stories, by the way. That's how you interpret. When somebody tells you a story, Jesus is going to give us some parables that He's not going to interpret for us. And so we're going to have to interpret them for ourselves. And the way that's going to work is this. You're going to look at the parable and there's going to be some things that kind of jump out and they seem obvious. And then there's other things you're going to be like, I have no idea what that means. You're not going to just sit there and do nothing. You're going to take what you understand You're going to reflect on it. You're going to try to put it into action somehow and from that discern the meaning of the other stuff. When we interpret a story, we start with the knowledge we have and as we pursue that understanding, we gain more understanding. That's how interpretation works. That's how faith works as well. None of us at the beginning of the journey, are given all the knowledge and understanding. You won't have all your questions answered. Jesus isn't going to give you everything that you need to know in order to follow Him. You're just going to get some understanding that's going to be incomplete. And what you have, you might not even be able to fully articulate. We never start with complete understanding. We just make connections that seem clear and we build On those connections. We work our way forward just as we do in interpreting a parable. You decipher the mystery by acting on what you have, and then you gain more understanding as you go. And it's with that reality in mind that each of us should respond to the gospel. I'm not going to say what kind of soil do you want to be, because I think we all know from the story we want to be fruitful. Right? We want to be the, the soil where the message isn't choked off or, or, or never even get started. But the question is, what does that mean? How, how do we do that? How should we act? Well, act on what you have. Act on the understanding God has given you and trust that He will give you more, that He will give you the rest. But don't wait until you have as much as you want before answering Him. Don't dismiss the gospel out of hands because it challenges what you already believe and you can't reconcile those challenges. Don't wait until you can make it all make sense. Act on the understanding you have. Don't turn your back on the message of the kingdom because there's resistance to it because not everybody agrees. Don't neglect it Because it requires sacrifices. Instead, act on the gift of understanding that you've been given. And more understanding will come. And as you act, don't try to split the difference either. As you act on the understanding that you have, there will be a distance between you and the world. And it will grow and grow as you act and act. You can't love the world and the kingdom all at once. You have to love the kingdom, even if it means turning your back on the world. Whatever understanding you have, come to Christ, enter the kingdom, and strive for greater understanding, for more knowledge. The answers are not going to come to you before the obedience does. You can't wait till you have it all worked out because the hesitation has consequences. The truth doesn't stay where it is. It doesn't stay beside you waiting. The more you push, the more distance grows. I'm the kind of person who believes in looking before you leap. I don't like to make big decisions until I know everything that's going to happen. Until I have all of the information. So it pains me to say that Jesus is telling us that is not the way to live ultimately. That ultimately the spiritual reality is you've got to act on what you have and you can't wait till you think you have enough. But there is one last thing here. And this is something you can be encouraged by because this really is a last thing, an end point for what we're about to say. There's a, there's a little promise, a little good news. I hope you you get the point that, that what I'm telling you is the parables are a kind of punishment or judgments, And we should be sobered by the fact that Jesus Is now teaching this way, but in this parable there is actually something to be very encouraged by. Now, you look at the parable of the sowers. It looks like there's four different outcomes. There's like three ways to get it wrong and one way to get it right. But that's not actually correct. There's just two things here happening, not four. Right? There's there's unfruitfulness and there's fruitfulness. And you're like, okay, yeah, but there's three different ways to be unfruitful and just one way to be fruitful. Wrong again. Jesus balances those things. It's actually three and three. So it gives us three different ways that people neglect the understanding that they are given and three ways that they are fruitful. It's just that they're, they're measured differently. The, the three ways of fruitfulness are quantitative. A hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. So those who hear with understanding and act upon that knowledge are fruitful and increase, and they increase to varying degrees. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. Now, there's a difference in that increase, right? It's a difference of degrees. But all of them have one thing in common, which is that the fruitfulness is out of all proportion to the seed. That's the note of hope. That's the note of hope. That for those who have understanding, for those who are fruitful, the fruitfulness overflows. If I told you right now that I could give you an investment tip and any money that you trusted with me this Sunday, by next Sunday, I could increase 30-fold. I'd probably have a lot of takers. Well, I wouldn't have a lot of takers, but if you could trust me with financial decisions, I would have a lot of takers, right? Because a 30-fold increase, that's huge. If I said that's actually the, the low end of the spectrum, that for some, maybe I could get you a 60-fold or even a 100-fold increase, you'd be like, sign me up. These are great returns. What do I have to put in? I to, well, a seed. Sign me up. So there's a fruitfulness at the end of the parable that's out of all proportion, Right? So that's a hopeful note for us, and it's hopeful in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, we can't compare what the Spirit does in each of us. Like, There's a difference in the degree of fruitfulness that Jesus describes, but all of them are good. You don't produce as much fruit as the person next to you. Maybe you produce less, maybe you produce more, but that's okay, because the Spirit works differently to achieve different things in all of us, and we can't really compare one another in order to see how we're valued in the eyes of God. The point is that all of us are fruitful, that he works in all of us, and we should be grateful for the work that he does. The second thing is more fundamental, but ironically, I find this more encouraging. It's the simple assurance of any fruitfulness at all. There's an assurance here, a promise, that that if this spiritual understanding is at work in you, you don't need to be worried about whether or not you're going to produce fruit, you will. And you'll produce it in abundance. Whether you understand it or see it or not, God will be working in you. If you are in Christ, then you will be fruitful. It's going to happen. And that's another reason not to hold back. If you're worried about following Jesus because you're not sure whether you can do it, like whether you can live up to whatever you imagine the standard is, what you would have to do, this should be an assurance that God's the one who does it. That it's God who does it, not you. Of course, you can't do it, but you don't need to. Because Jesus will do it in you and through you. Thank you for listening.